Last time ended on a bit of a sour note at the end of chapter 1. There are a few chapters in the Bible that are more sobering and even frightening than Romans chapter 1. And a lot of us hear messages like that about Romans chapter 1 or some pieces of Revelation or those Old Testament prophets and we're like, yeah, preach it. We get addicted to what you could call strong preaching. We like hearing people get up and denounce things. Nobody said it. It's about time you said it. We even see this in politics, right? We, we get drawn to the guy that is going to stand up and boldly and strongly say what he's thinking and say what's wrong and what's got to be done about it. And that's true across the board. But Paul is aware of that, and so is the Holy Spirit. As we get into chapter 2, he's going to head that off at the pass. The title today is, And That Goes For You Too which is really the whole point of chapter 2. Chapter 1 is all about the wrath of God being revealed, and chapter 2, before he gets to chapter 3, is all about, and don't think that you're left out of that. Because there is a religious temptation to count yourself as spiritually untouchable compared to other people. You talk about their sins and their mistakes and their false doctrine and their other errors, and you think that somehow you are not subject to the same scrutiny. This is why the term Pharisee has gone to mean much more and much different than what it meant back in the day. A Pharisee was somebody who was very scrupulous in keeping the law and maintaining a Jewish ethnic identity and not letting Rome erode his culture. But now we think of a Pharisee as a hypocrite because that's how Jesus talked to them. Luke chapter 18, verse 11. Remember this parable? The two men go to prayer, the tax collector and the Pharisee. And the Pharisee, it says in Luke 18, 11, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. It tells us he stood by himself, because that's how he thought he stood, was by himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. And now Paul was a Pharisee. Later on, he says, I was a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. So he came from a family of Pharisees. So he understood this. So he knows this attitude so well that at the very beginning of his book, Romans, he's going to address that attitude. This whole chapter is about assuring his audience, and specifically in context, his Jewish audience, that they are not excluded from God's wrath. And this is something that every generation of Christian has to face. Because that old Pharisee loves to show up to church. And he wants to look outward and spend all of his time looking at everybody else and laying out how they're wrong. And he gets a reputation as being a strong preacher that is willing to call out anybody and stands for truth. But in his heart, he's proud and he's judgmental. And he himself is heaping up wrath for the day of judgment, as this chapter will say. Because our salvation, and this is going to be our main point today, is meant to lead to repentance, a lifestyle of repentance, and a harvest of good works. And if that is not happening, the Bible has some very serious warnings for you. So we're going to take this three or four verses at a time. But let me read the whole, whole section, all, all 11 verses to begin. He says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. 
For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, And do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. It gives us a really good sense of the flow of this passage and where we're going So let's back up and look at those first three verses again. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? In the last chapter... We talked about the revelation of God's righteousness. That's what the gospel is, the revelation of God's righteousness. And the first explanation of that that Paul gave was the revelation of God's wrath against sin. Righteousness, dikaiosune is our Greek word. It means fairness. It means justice. And the first example of that is that God is not going to allow sin to go unpunished. He used the phrase, they are without excuse for those who refuse to believe the truth about God. He says in the very end of chapter 1, those who practice and approve such works deserve to die. And you can hear a lot of hearty amens coming from the congregation. But in verse 1, we have another very heavy therefore. Do you remember we talked about this last time in verse 24? Instead of the word for, which is stacking and building, he switches from the word gar to the word dio which is a therefore. It's like the gavel dropping. Therefore, here's the judgment. But then in verse 1, he says it again. Therefore, therefore what? You have no excuse. (laughs) You say, me? Wait a minute, you were talking about sinners. You have no excuse. That word for no excuse is you are without the Greek word anapologetos. So an is a negation, Apologatos is the word apologia or apology. It's where we get the word apologetics from, which is what? The defense of the faith. Don't think of an apology like I'm so sorry. Think of an apology as a defense. So we're using throughout this chapter legal terminology, God's justice, the verdict that is coming down. And you have no defense. You ever listen to those uh, legal talk shows on the air? And people call in and they say, hey, what what do I do in this situation? Sometimes the guy goes, you have no case. I'm sorry. This is what's going on here. You have no case. You have no defense. You have no excuse. And specifically, who, who has no excuse? 
the one who judges. He uses that word judge an awful lot in these verses. Do you see that? You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice these things. The judgment of God falls. You who judge, do you see how often he's using that word? The word in Greek is krino. It means to distinguish. It can even mean to separate, to judge something. You can see why that can come together, because to judge something is to determine what is good and what is evil, what is worthy of punishment, what is not. And he says, you have set yourself up as the judge, even though we've already know that who is the judge? It's the Lord. God is the judge. But you set yourself up as a judge. But the problem is, you have the same verdict coming your way because you practice the very same things. He said in verse 32 of chapter 1, those who practice them deserve to die. Therefore, you deserve to die because you practice those things. Judgmental people think that if they approve of God's law, they are somehow exempt from keeping God's law. I'm not sure why that is, other than we're sinful people. They think, if I agree with all of God's judgments of what is right and what is wrong, I know who belongs in what category, right? I've distinguished heretics over here, righteous people over here, then I'm good, That's what being righteous is. But Paul comes in and is like, that's not what being righteous is. Judging people, knowing who goes where, even standing up and enjoying some tough preaching every once in a while. I want to hear you denounce stuff. I want to hear you call stuff out. Tell us what's right. Tell us what's wrong. Okay, there's a place for that. But that's not what being righteous is. No, I'm not held to the same standard because I agree with God's righteousness. Have, Have you ever seen this before, maybe when you were in school, and the teacher's starting to get everybody in trouble, and there's that one kid that sidles up to the teacher, and is like, I can't believe these kids, man. My, my children will do this. They all do something, and Micah will lean over, and is like, yeah, Dad, they're really poorly behaved, young children, aren't they? And I turn to him, and I'm like, what are you doing over here? You belong over there. It's the same attitude. But there's always religious people that think, well, I'm religious, so I don't have to do all of that stuff. There's a great example of this in the Old Testament, the book of Amos. I love the book of Amos. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible. I can't wait to teach it here. But it begins in chapter 1, where Amos begins to denounce all of the nations surrounding Israel. He prophesied to the northern kingdom. And he uses this phrase, For three transgressions and for four I will not remove the judgment. He starts with Syria. And then he goes to the Philistines. And then he goes to the Phoenicians, Tyre and Sidon. And then he goes to the nations that are related to Israel, the Edomites, the Ammonites, and the Moabites. And you can just, you can hear the religious people squealing like, oh yeah, you get them, Amos. You tell them what they deserve. And then he even calls out Judah. And then, oh, this guy's preaching. He's not afraid to say what needs to be said. It's about time somebody preached that. But then you'd think he'd have this complete set of seven, right? But then all of a sudden he has an eighth nation and he calls out Samaria. Amos 2 verse 6 does says the Lord for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. It's such a remarkable rhetorical strategy. He gets them all saying, amen, hallelujah, as he circles their nation. And then he gets a little closer. Now it's family. Oh, now it's Judah. Now it's you. They assumed 
like the Jews in Rome, that they were outside of the denunciation that he was giving. The Jews that would have been reading this would have been nudging their Gentile buddies in the church, not even conceiving that it had anything to do with them. In fact, I'm not going to get into details here, but there's a a Jewish traditional book that was written in between Malachi and Matthew called The Wisdom of Solomon. And in a lot of the sins it calls out and in the language it uses, very similar to what Paul says in chapter 1. In fact, it could even be intentional that Paul is trying to draw their memory to that. The Jews there would have known this passage. But here's a very significant difference. The Wisdom of Solomon comes to the end of its chapter 1, so to speak, of all its denunciations. And then it has this little passage where it goes, But thank God Israel's not like that. So we don't have to go through that same kind of judgment. Paul does the exact unexpected thing. They think, oh, I've heard this one before. I know where this sermon is going. He's going to come back and say, this is why you Gentiles got to be more like us. But instead, Paul comes in and says, and that goes for you too. So how does this apply to us? Well, let me go ahead and make it right in our situation. Agreeing with my sermon last time about homosexuality does not excuse you from obedience to God. Oh, that was so good. That was just what needed to be said. Well, I hope it was. But don't think that agreeing with that allows you to go home and live however you want. Because I'm on the right team, so it's okay. So many people think that things like that are going to save them. They think their doctrine will save them. I've got all my doctrine lined up. I like to take my time going around online and finding other churches that have got it wrong and writing blogs about them. I've got it all right. I'm going to stand up. I'm going to preach this week. It's going to be against them, and then it's going to be against these people. My doctrine will save me. But Jesus told the scribes and the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have life, but these are they which testify of me. His point was, you can even be a devotee of the Bible and miss it. It doesn't matter if you got all your doctrine right. You ever met somebody that maybe had their doctrine a little off, but man, they love Jesus and the Lord was using them? That makes religious people upset. God, you can't use them because they got their doctrine wrong. The Lord's like, I'm really not as concerned with that as I am with their obedience to me. Or they think that going to church will save them. Problem with this country, nobody goes to church anymore. Well, yes and no. Church doesn't save you. You've heard it your whole life. Being in a church does not make you a Christian any more than being in a garage makes you an automobile. Well, I tithe. I give to the church. I gave to the church, so God has to let me in because I've already paid for my ticket. That's not what that is. If that's what you think tithing is, stop tithing until you figure out what it is. Or they think that going online... And ranting and raving about everybody who's got it lying. That that's what makes me righteous. I find it so hilarious. Let's pick on the right wing for a minute. The right wing loves to call out the left wing for what we call virtue signaling, right? You're not going to do anything about it. You're just going to get online and get all mad about it. And that makes you feel good. We do the same thing. We call out virtue signaling and that's our virtue signaling. We do that in the church. You know what? I've just got to say this. And you have some really blistering post on Facebook and you walk away and think, now surely God will be pleased with me. No, he's not. You haven't done anything. It's cheap. It's easy. Like I was talking about the school outreach at the beginning of the, the service today. It's cheap and easy to say that's wrong and that's wrong. You know, it is harder and much more difficult to get down in it and start loving and helping those people. 
I can feel some of y'all getting like, well, I don't know about that. Just, you've got to hear this. Discipleship is not about that. It is about obedience to Christ. It is worship of the Lord. Why do we focus on those silly things sometimes? Is doctrine important? Is going to church and tithing, is all that important? Oh, yes, it is. But it's important because of what comes first, which is worship and obedience to Christ. The Pharisees had it all right. Their doctrine was sound, man. They were not about to let Rome come in and take their country away. They were not about to move on the law. They spent all their time reading and studying the Bible and memorizing Scripture. But Jesus comes, and who are the ones that are getting saved? Fishermen and tax collectors and prostitutes and demon-possessed homeless people. And those are the ones that God used to build His church. Jesus said in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! That's a Jesus word. It means actor. You're actors. You put on a face. It says, because you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. They had come home from the grocery store, take the paprika, pour it out on the table, separate one-tenth of it into a little bag and put the other nine back in the little jar. Then take the one-tenth to the temple to make sure they're tithing everything. But he says, you've neglected justice and mercy and faithfulness. He says, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So the point is, don't tithe your dill and mint and cumin. Do all of it. You are blind guides. You strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. Uh Uh-oh, there's a fly in my coffee. Get that out real quick. But there's a camel sitting in your coffee and you swallow that. That's the problem. That's what Paul is addressing here. It's judgmentalism. And we hear that and go, well, people say don't judge in order to excuse all kinds of things. Yes, but Jesus still said it. Jesus still said, judge not lest you be judged. And the measure with which you judge people is how God's going to judge you. Consider how you judged the last story of wickedness that you heard. Would you like God to judge you that way? Because that's what he said he's going to do. But they're wicked. Oh, I'm not contesting that. I'm not saying that they're not wicked. I'm saying that that action is also wicked. Look at how he says this. He says, says, do you suppose, O man, O anthrope, he says, O mere human being, that you're going to somehow stand alongside God and judge a bunch of people and think that's what righteousness is? That's not what righteousness is. And we're going to examine that in, in more detail as we go through. But they were judging people and say, you shouldn't do that. And then they'd go home and do the same kinds of things. Well, it's different. I'm Jewish. Paul's like, it doesn't work that way. Oh, it's different. I'm Christian. Same exact answer. We've got to look today at how the gospel ought to affect our conduct, not just our opinions of who is and is not right. You must recognize, hear me right now, what's the point of everything I've said so far? Disapproval of evil is not the same thing as being righteous. It's easy to disapprove what is evil. You ought, even evil people disapprove what is evil. You ever be working with that guy and his, his life is a mess and he does all sorts of terrible things, but he'll, he's got that one group like, that's just not right that they do things like that. You know, I would never lie. It's like, yeah, but you also cheat on your wife. Yeah, but I would never lie about it. If she asked me, I would tell her. It's like, <laughs> that's not any better, my friend. Disapproval of evil is not the same thing as being righteous. And if you're going to set yourself up as a judge, you better watch out because that same judgment is coming against you. 
verse 4 and 5. Or, he says, oh, maybe, maybe you don't agree with that. Well, then here's this option. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness, underline it, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. I can hear the objections already. Tyler, I'm a Christian, so that doesn't apply to me. Well, Paul addresses exactly that. This is, a, this is a very sarcastic verse here. Oh, I see. You, you're presuming. You're assuming that God's patience with you gives you permission to sin. We would say, no, 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 no. But you've got to hear that. That word for presume, it's interesting how he translates it in ESV. Because the word is kataphroneo, which means to think against. That's not what it means. It's literally against and think together. It means to despise. The older translations have it translated that way, to despise. Do you despise the kindness of God? Well, of course not. What does it mean, though? To despise God's kindness, according to this verse, is to treat his patience and even your salvation as permission to sin. Because God has forgiven me, I can do whatever I want. I don't have to take righteousness seriously. I can sin and I'll get around to eventually praying for it later. It's astonishing that we do that. And then yet as Protestants, we want to condemn the Roman Catholic Church for their, their system of confession and everything else when we're practically doing the same thing. I'll just sin, eventually I'll go pray and I'll be all over. That's the same negative attitude that the church tried to reform. These folks were judging these immoral Gentiles. Yeah, they're, you don't even know, Paul. We live in the slums of Rome. You can't imagine what goes on here. But they were committing the same awful sins themselves. And at the end of this chapter, Paul's going to give a lot of examples. But their excuse is, well, we're Jews. We're of the nation of Israel. We're exempt from God's judgment. Therefore, it doesn't matter what we do. They'd never come out and say it like that, but Paul's a great preacher and a great apostle, and he says, I'm going to lay out in text form what's going on in your heart so that you'll have to confront it. And he makes this great statement. It's one of my favorite verses. He says, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And I love to emphasize the fact that it is his kindness, that God doesn't come in smacking you around to make you repent. But the emphasis in this verse is on the repentance part, isn't it? God's kindness does not lead to license. Salvation and grace and mercy and forgiveness does not lead to license to sin, but to repentance. This is what John the Baptist said. He said it almost as harsher than Paul did. He says, when the Pharisees, remember them, came out to be baptized by John, he says, oh, look who it is, the brood of vipers. Does that mean your mama was a snake? Who, who warned you to come out? Who told you what was going on to come out and be baptized? He says in verse 8 of Luke 3, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. And I can see John the Baptist reaching in the water and pulling up a big old rock and saying, I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. You, need, you, want, you want to come and repent and be baptized by me? I'll baptize you when I see evidence that you've actually repented. How dare you, sir? We're children. Don't even say to me you're children of Abraham. God could turn that rock into a child of Abraham if he wanted to. Acting as if you did something and that's why you're saved. It's the same thing for us as Christians. Well, I'm a Christian. The Lord's like, I can save anybody. I could turn that rock into a Christian if I wanted to. 
If you've truly encountered God's grace, as both Paul and John say, repentance is the only proper response. Repentance. This is the Greek word metanoia. It means to change your mind, to change the way you think. If you've truly encountered God's kindness, let's put it this way. If you're truly saved, you're going to think differently about things. You're not going to think like everybody else anymore. Your motivations, the things that excite you, the things that repel you are going to change. You're also going to actively work to correct where your thinking has gone wrong. In the Old Testament, it was the Hebrew word shuv that is often translated repentance. And that means just to turn, to turn, to change your direction. So I love those two things together. Change the way you're thinking and change the direction you're walking in. A lot of times we think I can change the way I think without changing the way I walk. But Paul is trying to correct that attitude. You've got to bear good fruit, as John said. I'm an apple tree, sir. He says, yeah, well, I don't see any apples on your tree. How dare you? Apples don't make an apple tree an apple. It's the DNA that makes an apple tree an apple. He goes, okay, well, I don't see any apples on your tree. How do you know your DNA is an apple tree? Because you have apples on it. Failure to make that kind of change, that change of mind and the change of direction, he says that evidence is that you have a hard and impenitent heart. Impenitent is, the, the Greek there is not repentant. Uses the word for repentance and adds an, a negation in front of it. You are unrepentant. You're not sorry. You're not making any kinds of changes. You said it to your kids a thousand times. You're only saying sorry because you got caught, and the second I stop looking at you, you're gonna do it again. You're gonna come back and say sorry again. Maybe you had older kids. Say sorry. Sorry. That's not a good apology. I said sorry. It's like, I'm smart enough to know the difference between a true apology and a false one. Well, so is God. God knows the difference between a false response to an altar call and a true one. What's the difference? How do you know? Well, is there fruit? He says, if you don't, there's wrath awaiting you. If you see Christianity as a religion that gives you permission to live however you like and then come back and say sorry every once in a while, you're not saved. You're still under wrath. That's what's waiting for you. Nor do you get to pick a few pet characteristics and insist upon those while neglecting major holiness. The ones that we always like to pick on is you've got to dress this way and have your hair this way and talk this way and sing these songs and that's what makes you righteous. But, you know, you can go to your job and rip people off and you can yell at your wife and scream at your kids and you can have lustful thoughts and you can curse. That's all fine as long as you have all these things right. James 2, verse 26 says, As the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. This is a great example, by the way, how chapter 2 of Romans and James chapter 2 are in harmony with one another. Paul is not teaching that you can do whatever you want when he talks about grace. He's saying the exact same thing. He says, if you you are presuming on God's kindness, (laughs) God's going to save me, so I'll just wait until the second before I die, and then I'll accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and I'll be good to go. It's not magic. It's not an incantation. You're you're dealing with a personal God. Does it not frighten you to know that many Christians are going to be absolutely shocked on Judgment Day? That they're not going to heaven? Jesus said in Matthew 7, how many? Many will come and say, Lord, Lord. And the Lord will say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Isn't that what it's all about? Knowing the Lord? I do know the Lord. But if you're still a worker of iniquity, no, you don't. 
Yes, God is loving and God is gracious, but he did not save you so that you could keep spreading that sinful infection. But I'm not as bad as them. That's not how it works. You still have the virus. You still have the curse upon you. Getting into verse 6 now. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So he just mentioned judgment. He said, you've got to stop judging those people because you're doing the exact same thing. And don't think that you can say, well, God saved me so I can do whatever you want. You've still got judgment coming. And now in these verses, he says, what's that judgment going to be like? How is God going to judge that day? When you come and you do jury duty, I've had to do this before, the judge will give you the relevant laws according to the case that you're supposed to decide. Paul is here giving us the relevant law that is going to be evaluated when you stand before God. And in verse 6, he lays down a very solid, well-established biblical principle. He will render to each one according to his works. On judgment day, God is going to repay all of your works in fairness and justice. What it says in Psalm 62, verse 12, among other places, To you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. He explains it right there in verse 7 and 8. Those who do good will receive eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, it's wrath and fury. The fury of God. Can you imagine such a thing? Now this is God's righteousness. We've talked about this. Dekaiosune, righteousness at its base level just means fairness. God is fair. You pay for your own sins. You don't got to pay for anybody else's. And you get paid in the proportion that you deserve. And if you hear that and you go, yay, slow down. It's nice to know that God is not going to be retributive and God is not going to pile on more than what you deserve. He's not going to have a bad day. Woke up on the wrong side of the bed and that's the day you had to stand before the judge. That's encouraging. It's also encouraging to know that God is not going to allow your righteousness to go unrewarded. But it's important to know the context of these verses here. Because there are those who will take these verses out of context in order to establish a, a works-based salvation. See, right there, God is going to save you by your works. That's the standard of judgment. You've got to read them in context. Paul is building to something here. In chapter 1, he talks about the wrath of God is revealed against sin. Righteousness is going to be based upon whether, or judgment is going to be based upon whether or not you were righteous or unrighteous. But he goes, that seems fair. But when we get into chapter 3, it's all about, and no one is righteous. So you've got to read this in context, right? You can't just rip out the first part. We hate it when the news channels do that to the politicians, right? You only took that sentence out, but he kept going. You didn't give us any of that. Don't do that to scripture, okay? So no one is righteous. We're all destined for wrath and for hell. You are saved by the grace of God alone. But we'll get to that. The point here that he's trying to make is that being part of God's elect does not excuse you from judgment. In fact, Revelation 2.23, Jesus says to the church, I will render to each one of you according to your works. So don't think you can take all those passages about being judged by your works and ball them up and throw them away because of the cross. In one sense you can, but in another you absolutely should not. How do we reconcile the gospel of grace with the coming judgment of works? We're going to get into this a little bit. We've got time to understand this, and we'll bring it to a close here. 
keeping in mind always the context of this. Paul is trying to, he's calling out hypocrites and people who are judgmental. But let's look at this. The last judgment in the Bible is often called the Great White Throne Judgment. It's a good name because it says in Revelation 20, verse 11, And behold, I saw a great white throne. So there you go. That's the final judgment. And the criteria, we're not going to read this passage, but the, the criteria of judgment of there is that all the dead, small and great, stood before the great white throne, and books were opened, and they were judged according to their work. So God's got the ledger, your permanent record. Remember that from school? Your permanent record is right there, and he's going to open it up, and each will be judged according to their works. But he says there's another book, which was the book of life. And verse 15 says, everyone whose name was not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is how you know this is from the Lord, because this, this passage is such a good job of establishing biblical theology of judgment. That yes, judgment is according to your works, but if it's going to be just by that standard, then everybody's lost. The only ones that are going to survive are not those whose works saved them. There are none of those at the great white throne, but those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So that's what the final judgment is. So now we're going to ask the question, okay, well, what about those who are written in the Lamb's book of life? I'm hoping that's you and me. Are we going to be judged according to our works? We've already seen that we are, because Revelation chapter 2, Jesus told exactly that to the church. There is another judgment that is described, and there is disagreement about whether or not it's going to happen at the same time or not. I'm not really going to get into that. But we are given what our standard of judgment will be for Christians in the Bible. Different in kind, but still very sobering to consider. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So Paul right there, writing to Christians, makes it very clear. We will stand before what's called the judgment seat of Christ, and you will receive what is due for what has been done in the body. You maybe have heard this referred to as the bema seat, because the Greek word there is bema. And it was used a number of ways. It was used for the, the magistrate who would sit in the city square on a sort of dais or a little stage called the bema, the judgment seat. Pontius Pilate sat down at the judgment seat when he proclaimed judgment upon Jesus. It also was used in athletic competitions. We just had our Olympics get started. Back then, they had those same sorts of games, and the judges would stand on the judgment seat, the bema seat. And there are those who have argued very persuasively, I think, that it is that athletic metaphor that is more relevant for this subject than the courtroom one, but I'm not going to dive into that too much today. It is a final appraisal of your works as a Christian. Salvation being settled, now we're going to look at your works. Let me read 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. Paul says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved but only as through fire. This is an incredibly important passage to know. The judgment seat of Christ. He talks about the foundation, which is Christ Jesus, what he did on the cross, the apostles and the prophets. And he says, when you live your Christian life, it's like you're building a temple on that foundation. You get to add something by your life. 
There's a really great tie into the doctrine of spiritual gifts here that I'm not going to get into. He said, what you add cannot really be evaluated in this life, but when you stand before Jesus, says he will evaluate it by the fire of his gaze, and what you have done will be made manifest. Not so much what did you do, but what was the quality of what you did. This is for some, it's going to be gold, silver, precious stones. You heat up gold, you just get more pure gold. You heat up wood or straw, it burns right up. And so the completion of God's church will only consist of that which has been done as gold, silver, and precious stones. So there's some quick conclusions we can draw from those two passages here, some doctrinal points. Number one, at the judgment seat of Christ, it is for Christians only. He makes it very clear. This is those who have built upon the foundation of Christ. And that he says that even those who suffer loss will be saved. So this is important. Number two, it is a judgment of your works. We're not talking about being in the book of life or not being in the book of life. He says that each one may receive what is due for what has been done. So that ties in very clearly with what Paul is talking about in Romans 2 and elsewhere. Number three, it judges the eternal value. That's what's being judged. It's not, did you do something for me, but was it worth anything? Lots of people have pastored churches and gone on mission trips and served, and they just, they just frustrated people. They didn't add anything to the Lord's church, really. A lot of maybe even big ministries that we're going to watch go up in smoke on that day. Number four, it is an apportionment of rewards. That's what he says, that you will receive a reward. Isn't that something? This is why that athletic metaphor works so well. It is that you're, it's like receiving medals at the Olympics. You're going to be standing on the podium, and you're going to receive gold, silver, precious stones, right? Number five this is very important. It is not about salvation. Because he says in verse 15, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So some people will come into heaven and there'll be a grand triumphant procession and, you know, well done, my good and faithful servant. There'll be some folks that it's like an action movie. They're just diving out of the building while it blows up, you know, and you'll be saved, but as through fire. Your tail feathers will get scorched on your way into heaven. But that does not should not cause us to go, oh, well, then it doesn't matter. No. Number six, it will mean loss and fire for some. It's described as loss and being burned up in the fire. Not saying you're going to have to go to hell for a while to burn off all the wrong you did. Jesus took care of all that at the cross. But that's what we're going to face. I think when you consider the argument Paul is making here in chapter 2, which is we're all going to be lost on that day if it's just by works, but he's still calling the church to take that that mandate seriously. The clear statements of salvation, right? Anywhere it's talking about how we are saved plainly, it's only by grace. I think you look at the relevant passages that talk about judgment, especially 1 Corinthians 3. This is the best way to understand the coming judgment for you and for I. The judgment seat of Christ. You will be saved, but your works will be evaluated. Now, if you hear that and you go, oh, good, I can take it easy then. As long as I get in, I don't mind getting burned a little bit. If you, if you think that, you have not understood what this means. And Paul would, would say, examine yourself to see whether you are truly in the faith. Imagine everything you have ever lived and ever worked for burning away before your very eyes. While the rest of us enter into the kingdom in splendor and glory with Jesus Christ. 
That's a horrible thing to consider. For me, to think that I go through my whole life and all this pain and all this struggle and all this self-discipline and all the ups and downs, and I come to the very end of my life and I close my eyes and I get to go stand before Jesus, and he goes, you get to come in, but nothing you ever did is worth anything. What a horrible thought. Maybe that's the final tear that Jesus is going to wipe away from our eyes. When you consider that nothing counted, just one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. C.T. Studd said that. Paul says that those who despise God's kindness are only storing up wrath for themselves. <laughs> yeah, God's a sucker. God's not judging me. God's letting me get away with everything. And then in the last day, I've done everything he said, so I've got him right where I want him. I can live my life how I want to live, and I still get to go to heaven. Paul goes, you are a fool if that's what you think. Forgiveness leads to repentance, which leads to good works. And if that's not happening, you're deceived. Coming to the end, verses 9 through 11 now. He sort of repeats himself, but with a different emphasis. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. You can see this time he's not so much emphasizing what they're going to receive as the impartial nature of it. He's tying Jews and Greeks together here. He used that phrase the Jew first and also the Greek back in verse 16, right? It is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also the Greek. But then he comes in and says, and that means judgment comes first to the Jew and then to the Greek. Can you see how he's trying to level the playing field with his audience here? And that's the rest of what this chapter is meant to emphasize, and we'll discuss that more next time. But what you need to see here is God is fair. There is no partiality. This is proso. Palempsia. It literally means the receiving of faces. There is no reception of face with God. And this is remarkable because that word is, is found for the first time in Greek literature in the Bible. Because it is a Semitism, meaning it is a Hebrew turn of phrase spoken in Greek. You ever have a friend who's foreign from a different country? Sometimes they'll use phrases that we never use because they picked it up from wherever they came from. This is one of those phrases. Reception of faces. This is, you see this in the Old Testament a lot, right? You will not see my face again. I'll stand before the face of God. It was a very important thing. So Paul comes in and he's not a receiver of faces. God doesn't check you out to see who you are. Oh, yeah, you're one of mine. You can come in. Oh, no, you're not a Jew. You can't come in here. God doesn't do that. There is no partiality. There is no status that you can have that will give you an advantage with God. Your church membership means nothing before God. But Lord, I went to Calvary Chapel, and they teach verse by verse. He's a Baptist, Lord. How are you going to take him in and not me? Doesn't matter. Oh, too real for you? Sorry about that. Your citizenship. But Lord, I'm an American. He's Chinese. He's from Afghanistan. He's from Russia. How can you receive them in front of me? God's like, that doesn't matter to me. Your bank statement means nothing. Whether you're saying, Lord, you've clearly blessed me. Look how much money I have. Don't you know how many churches I could build for you with this money, Lord? Or saying, look how poor I am, Lord. You told me to be poor, and here I am. God's like, no, you both missed it. Your political affiliation does not matter. Well, you see, God, I was part of a democratic republic, just the way you wanted it. God's going to say, yeah, were you righteous? 
your titles, your accomplishments. None of that means anything before God. It doesn't matter. You're going to stand right next to president whoever and the most high reverend whoever, and you're all going to be naked before the throne of God. And he's going to judge you according to your works, not according to any of that stuff. We certainly must not think that being a Christian is all about pointing fingers and being right. Sometimes we, we do that, you know. I think being Christian means being mad about all the right things. That's, that's not what it is. That's like a sliver of it, man. Do you think Jesus spent all his time being mad about the Pharisees? He spent all of his time worshiping his father and reaching out to the lost. And when the Pharisees showed up, yeah, he had some things to say. But he didn't say, that's what makes me righteous. Paul was not righteous for calling out Peter. He was righteous because he loved the Lord and he wanted the people of God to be able to worship together. How you emphasize it matters. And we can't neglect the weightier matters of God's word. Can I just say this? And we'll talk about it more in a few weeks. There are some people who focus so much on doctrine and so much on being right and so much on who's getting it wrong do so because their life is a mess and they can't fix it. So they think, I'm going to talk a lot about these very important doctrinal things and call out this false teacher and that false prophet and this thing over here because that way it's a smokescreen and I don't have to fix my marriage. I don't have to stop looking at pornography. I don't have to stop getting drunk every night because I'm right. That's not what it means to be a Christian. And can I say something else? Just being a Christian, well, I'm, I go to church. Look at my Facebook profile. It says Christ follower. You know I'm a Christian. You've got to actually live it out or this will not work for you. All these people who say, well, I tried Jesus and it didn't do anything for me. I don't believe you. I went to church. I went to conferences. I made my kids watch VeggieTales. That's not what being a Christian is. Look at what he says verses 9 and 10. Tribulation and distress for everyone who does evil. Glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. That doesn't just apply to heaven. That applies to now. You want glory and honor and peace? You've got to do good. We, we don't doctrine ourselves out of doing the right thing. That's the whole point of today. God knows how life is to be lived. And God's grace is meant to lead you to repentance that will bear fruit. But it's not just doing it because it's right, but it's the best way to live. Psalm 119 says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Salvation is not just about heaven. It's about getting us back on track and living life according to His commandments now. We've got to be grateful for that. The Lord's like, I'm going to fix up your life and you're going to live it the way I intended and it's going to be so amazing you're going to love every minute of it. Abundant life, Jesus called it. And there is no partiality. Oh yeah, you can, you can keep my commandments if you want to, but I saw how you voted in that last election, so I'm not, I'm, that's not going to work for you. God shows how much partiality? No partiality. And some of y'all are squirming right now. Good, it's supposed to make you squirm. And evaluate yourself. If you do good by the grace of God, then it says glory and honor and peace await you both now and forever. So let me end with this verse from Peter. These verses from Peter. This is kind of a summary of everything we're talking about. So hear this. If you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. 
knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He says, if you call on the Lord, live righteously. Yes, we fear God. Yes, we obey his commandments because we dare not be hypocrites. But look at why. We'll end with this. You, you are to live righteously because you were saved from the futility of life apart from Christ. You don't have to live that way anymore. That useless way that made your family spin its wheels and get nowhere. Or make a whole lot of money and everybody fell to pieces and now they all hate each other. God saved you from all that. And are you not eager to pursue his righteousness and heap up treasure for yourself in heaven? Don't you want to have rewards in heaven? I, I want to be like Michael Phelps on that day. I want, I want all gold medals on that day. When I stand before it, we say, well, that's selfish. No, it's not selfish because you can only get that reward by living selflessly. I want Jesus Christ to reward me for the way I lived. And that means I've got to keep his commandments. Psalm 119 again says, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Consider that. Not just, I love you, Lord, because you're so great. He says, I want to I do what's right. I want to obey every commandment. We hear that and go, man, Christianity is great except for all these rules we got to follow. Jesus said in Matthew eleven thirty, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. You might think, well, you know what's lighter than the light yoke is no yoke. So I'm going to do whatever I want. There is no yoke heavier than the yoke of sin. Philosophers will theorize. We can come up with our own system of righteousness and our own moral values. Apart from any kind of religion or doctrine of God, it doesn't work. You get really bitter, depressed people when you do that. Or you get people that start following God's commandments anyway. They just don't want to give them any credit for it. So I'll end with a warning. It's not good enough to identify who is wrong and who is right. To hear the chapter one, amen. That's what makes me a Christian. Oh, that's so sad. Being a Christian is all about finding other people we don't like. And I'm not saying that they're not wicked. This is the thing. If you're sitting here thinking, but Tyler, don't you know what they're saying? And don't you know what they're doing? And this is the doctrine that I've seen in this. Yeah, okay, yeah. I know that. There are people around the world that are throwing Christian brothers and sisters into prison and chopping off their heads. I understand. But that's not the point. What about you? The point is, don't think that that excuses you from keeping the Lord. You must pursue Him and obey Him. But the good news is, when you consider how impartially God has given His grace, this is where we're going with all these ideas. That God is impartial and that God doesn't receive faces First, it's talking about judgment, but when God comes in and liberates us from that judgment with Jesus Christ, now the gospel is available to everybody with that same impartiality. So why would we do anything else than obey everything Jesus said? He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I love Jesus Christ, and I know you do too. So let's keep his commandments, because he's been so good to us.